0: It's been in my personal experience, um, and when I say this, this is, this is also true for myself, but it's been in my personal experience when I've um, gathered with believers and we are trying to encourage each other to share the gospel, we sometimes come across like a, like an AA meeting. You know what I mean? Like an Alcoholics Anonymous. And I don't mean like a, like a real AA meeting. I mean like one of those characterized AA meetings that you find on a television show, where you come up and just like, hey everyone, my name is Mark, and, hi Mark, <laughs> and I I messed up this week, I, I didn't share the gospel, oh. <laughs> oh, that's okay, that's okay, Mark, that's all right, right, and we, you know what I mean, sometimes we do that, and like, we know that the gospel's good, like, we know, like, I mean, it does so many wonderful things for us. Like, for one, um, forgives us of all of our sins completely. Well, like, I need that, right? Like, two, um, eternal life. That's amazing. And three, infinite joy in the presence of God and all his people. Like, whoa, like, someone should tell somebody about this. And yet, here we are. You know, I was, I didn't know what to say. I was i was scared. You know, I I just, I'm just not good at this. You know, last week I had a conversation with a friend of mine, and, and, and they were asking me about the meaning of life, and I, didn't, I don't know, like, should I, have, should I have jumped into that? Like, if only God gave me a sign. You know what your sign is? You know what's the sign? Jesus Christ rose from the grave. He rose from the grave. Like, literally in literally, in, in Matthew chapter 28, the last words of Jesus, when, when, when all the disciples see him resurrected, they're like, oh, and Jesus just says, go, go, make disciples. This is a calling for all of us. Now, as much as we could maybe point at each other or ourselves individually and say, oh, yeah, probably could have been doing this better. I think it's a bit bigger than that. You see, I don't think the gospel was just commissioned to a single person or individuals. Like Jesus didn't go to, hey, hey, Mark, um, I got this task for you. Can you do it? It's like No, that's not what it was. It was bigger than that. Jesus gave the, the, the great commission to share the gospel to the church. You see, this is not a lone wolf activity. This is a team sport. We're in this together. We have to channel our efforts together. And that's a a comfort for me uh, because in myself, this is a daunting task. How am I ever going to do this? But as a church with support, real support, well, then maybe this is possible. Maybe we could do this together. But how does this look like? And that's really going to be our question um, today. The question I want to ask is, how does the church, in power, carry out the Great Commission? And that's what I think our text is going to, or our passage is going to reveal to us today as we look at the Church of Antioch. Because it's at the Church of Antioch, they send out the first missions. Now, I know it's a short passage, but it's a really important passage. In fact, I would even suggest to you it's pivotal. It's, it's really the door hinge that shifts the narrative because at first you had Peter's ministry. Uh, Actually, we have to read all of the book of Acts from chapter 1 verse 8 where Jesus says, and you will be my disciple or you'll be my witnesses uh, first to Jerusalem, then to Judea, then Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. And and so far what we've been reading in Acts is Peter's ministry um, in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. But now, there's gonna be a shift in the narrative and the focus is now gonna be Paul's ministry to the ends of the earth, to the ends of the earth. A ministry that's still happening today with us. And it all starts in the church of Antioch. Now in many ways, the city of Antioch is very much like the city of Toronto, very much so. For one, Antioch, was the third largest city in the ancient world, right after Rome and Alexandria. Toronto is the fourth largest city in North America. Antioch uh, was, was the heart of the Silk Road trade, so it was bursting with multiculturalism, different peoples from different lands. I can probably argue safely that Toronto is the most multicultural city uh, in the world. You just have to watch the, being the firework places last night, right? It was crazy. Um, so, it's a very multicultural city. And also, for us, we are like Antioch because the Church of Antioch is strategically placed there. It was in the Silk Road trade route, because it's the perfect place to begin the ministry to the ends of the earth. And here we are in Toronto to begin and continue that ministry to the ends of the earth, because the ends of the earth is right here. Now, I don't want to sugarcoat churches in the New Testament, because not every church in the New Testament is perfect. they, they it's pretty obvious that they're flawed, and it's kind of an encouragement to us because we can say, "Hey, we're not perfect," because not even the churches then were perfect. But if you look at the Church of Antioch, these guys are like Michael Jordan in his rookie year. They came out swinging. They, they just came out of nowhere, just, just helping everyone. At, at one point, after like a few, after a while, they're actually helping Headquarter Jerusalem Church. We're helping them with their funding. They're the first church to send out missionaries to the ends of the earth. So the Church of Antioch almost becomes like a a model church for us to look to and to see. And I want to point to you today five features of the Church of Antioch that we can take as examples for us as a church to model after. And after I do that, I'm gonna quickly say three more things about about this question, am I called to be a missionary? am I called to be a missionary and, and we 're going to sort of address that we 're going to run through that um, in four four three verses okay but before I do that i 'm going to give a brief trace of the Antioch Church one more time, just talking about its origin, its history, and then we 're going to jump into it so first off. Um, the church of Antioch started way before that. There was basically a great persecution that started with Stephen, who was stoned uh, by, uh, it was sort of led by Paul, uh, or Saul at the time. And because of that great persecution, Christians were dispersed from the air, so they were forced to leave Jerusalem. They didn't even, Jesus didn't even tell them, or Jesus told them to go, but they didn't initially leave until they were literally forced out. And there were some Christians from Cyrene, who then ended up in Antioch. Now, whether those Christians were Jewish by birth or converted to Judaism, um, it could have been either. But they were from Cyrene initially. We see that in Acts chapter 11. And Cyrene, uh, as we know today, is modern-day Libya. So they're North African Christians uh, who were previously either Jewish or converted to Jewish. Our, uh, Judaism. And, and I get this from Act. if you want to check this out, I get this from Acts chapter 2 verses 10 to 11. Uh, so here they go. They have no place of their own. They don't know what to do. So what do they do? They tell people about Jesus. And for the first time, Gentiles um, hear it and they're like, wow, this is awesome. Let's believe it. And the church immediately grows and becomes strong word gets back to hq jerusalem church and they're like hey there's a gentile church that just sprouted, sprouted out of nowhere we need to help them so they send barnabas golden boy barnabas and he goes there and he's like wow this is overwhelming there's so much of them i need backup so he goes and he gets um paul who's now named paul and he's no longer persecuting christians he's uh, pursuing the faith and Uh, pursuing people to become Christian. And so him and and Paul, um, Barnabas, they go to the church and they start investing in this church. And eventually, they grow in strength where they can then send missionaries. Now, let's look at these five features. The first feature, starting in verse 1 of chapter 13, I read, Now, in the church in Antioch, there were prophets and teachers: Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Okay. So all the, there's all these uh, male leaders, and, and this is going to be the first point for today. Okay. Feature number one of a strong of a church that uh, in power carries out the Great Commission. The first feature is. Strong, faithful men. Strong, faithful men in leadership. Now, there might be some responses from a particular gender in the crowd that might be responding like, well, excuse me? What are you trying to say about us? Right? Now, let me explain. Let me explain. Uh, I want to say that Strong, faithful women in the faith are already here. Like, they, like, we could just take them for granted that they're already there. And I even want to argue that strong, faithful men or, 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 or women tend to be more faithful than men. And I think I can argue this based on Scripture. For example, when Jesus uh, was crucified and he was buried, who were, who were the people visiting Jesus' tomb? It wasn't the disciples. They were locked up in the upper room. All the women were like, hey, uh, we're going to visit the tomb of Jesus. We're going to pass these big burly Roman guards. Do you, do you care to accompany us? And all the disciples were like, no, no, we're good. We're just good here being cowards. You know? And then after Jesus resurrected, all the women were like, no, Jesus is risen. Jesus is alive. He's, he's, you, know, uh, you, you guys need to see this. Jesus is alive, and all the disciples, they're, they're, most of them are still cooped up in that room, locked. And they're just like, oh, I don't know, I, I'm, I'm scared. Then we know it's locked because Jesus literally had to teleport into that room. And he's like, he comes there, he's like, Thomas, come here, give me your hand, right? <laughs> I'm alive, right? Women just tend to be more faithful. Then men it just it just happens like you see it, and even in our church they come and they 're just like hey i 'm here for kids' ministry, I heard you guys need help you know i heard I heard um, you guys are doing coffee and fellowship again, like like I baked all these cookies like do, do you want some like like where do you guys come from but But it just happens. women are just more faithful for some reason, and so we have to exhort the men to step up it 's the men who are called to to step up and to be faithful and to get out of that upper room and to lead and, 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 and for whatever reason in, in God's divine wisdom as, as we see in scripture uh, God calls men to be leaders in the church and also in the family and we're, we're called to step up in that way so that's the first feature the second feature it's still in verse 1, I'll read it again but I want to show you these names they're kind of interesting the first one is Barnabas Barnabas, right? Golden boy, Barnabas, son of encouragement, never going to give you up, even though you run away. Um, Barnabas, right? He's awesome. He grew up in church. He loves the Lord. All of that good stuff. Then you have Simeon, called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene. And I'm going to argue that these are probably some of those Christians that were displaced earlier um, from Jerusalem, Samaria, Judea, um, who were originally from Sirene, um, Simeon is called Niger, it's another way of saying it. someone's black. So they're uh, either Jewish who were in North Africa or they were North Africans who converted to Judaism and they're like the church planters. Then you have Menan. Manan is so interesting. Uh, this is little like brackets that say um, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. Herod the Tetrarch, you know who that, that's the guy who, beheaded John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin. And here he is, a leader of the church. Like, he's the most random background, but here he is helping against his childhood um, upbringing. And then you have Paul, the guy who's persecuting Christians in the past, throwing them into prison. Now he's trailblazer Paul, flame in his footsteps. Get out of my way, I'm here to share the gospel. Right? We have this guy, And we have this ragtag, diverse group of believers leading the church. And this is the point I want to make from this diverse group of believers. The point is this. Spiritual maturity is the only requirement for church leadership, for leading. Now, Now, I don't want to say that the only... I don't want to say point number two is... diversity, because I don't think we should be, we should have diversity for diversity's sake, you know? We don't look, we don't hire our people and say, hey, Aaron, you know, you really love the Lord, but, you know, Steve's already white, I'm sorry. We're not gonna do that, right? Um, And and I'm pretty sure here in the book of Acts, they're like, hey, Simeon, Lucius, like, you guys are awesome people who planted a church, but like, we already have a black person. Like, we're not gonna, they're not gonna do that, right? what they're going to do is this. Spiritual maturity is the only requirement so that because the Holy Spirit falls on all people, if you love the Lord and if you seek him earnestly, it doesn't matter who you are. That's what I love about the gospel because the gospel is the great equalizer. Anyone, anyone can follow and love Jesus. It doesn't matter who you are, your skin color, your social standing. If you are saying, I'm here for Jesus, and I'm, and I'm called, you're called, then you're called. It doesn't matter. And in that way, diversity just happens naturally. We're not seeking it for its own sake. But because the gospel is the great equalizer, we're all one in Christ, it just happens. So that's point number two. Point number three. And I want to point out these, this, this word that you'll see um, and it's just in verse 1 earlier. It says this At Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. Prophets and teachers. And, and what are those things? Well, a teacher, we're probably more familiar with. A teacher is someone um, who, in the in in, in biblical way, looks at scripture. And shows people how scripture that was written in the past is relevant to us today. At the time, they didn't have the New Testament, they had the Old Testament, but the Old Testament still pointed to Jesus as Jesus said it did. And so they were saying, hey, look, the Old Testament, this is about us, right? That's what the teachers were doing. And prophets, well, it might be a little bit more mysterious to us, but. The function of a prophet was to look um, towards the future uh, to see it. So we had a prophet prior um, in chapter 12. His name was. uh, Is it 12? No, it's 11. 11 verse 27, uh, verse to 28. There was a prophet named Agabus, and he predicts that there's a a future coming where there's a famine in Jerusalem, and so he channels the church's efforts to relieve the the those who would be suffering in the Christians who would be suffering in Jerusalem. And so, um, I want to say this. A prophet and a teacher, those aren't the only leadership positions in the church. We, we see in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, there's also like evangelists and apostles. I, I don't think apostles still exist, but there's evangelists and other uh, um, leadership positions. However, The author, Luke, purposely draws out these two positions, prophets and teachers, because they're highly related to carrying out the Great Commission. Why is that? Well, teachers look to the past to inform us of the present, and prophets look towards the future to guide us in the present so we could get... They look, prophets, teachers look at the past, prophets look at the uh, future, so we could get things done in the present, right? Now, what would a prophet look like? We know what a teacher looks like, but what would a prophet look like? Uh, Now, I do believe that the gifts still exist today. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, Paul says, eagerly desire the gifts, especially prophecy, but I think part of it is simply vision casting, looking towards the future and guiding the church in that way. And so I think we need church, our church needs to have our hand both in the past and the present to get things done, or past and the future to get things done in the present. Okay. Point number four. Feature number four. And I'm going to summarize this again afterwards. Um, And it's found in verse two, finally. While they were worshiping the Lord, and fasting. So this is the fourth feature. A church that carries out the gospel in power, worships the Lord, and fasts. Now, we're more familiar with worshiping, perhaps a little bit less familiar with fasting, but let's talk about it. Both really go together. They are, When they're together, it's like a positive chemical chain reaction. It's like when you take a Mentos and throw it in a Coca-Cola, and it just versed. It's that effective. Uh, But what is worship? Worship is basically when in your life you are praising God for who he is and what he's done. And your actions and your thoughts and your whole being is a reflection of that. See, worship isn't just on Sunday. Though worship is Sunday, I would say worship on Sunday is more like recharging your spiritual batteries. But this is something we need to be doing Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday fasting well that's when we take something away from our life we take something away from our life to focus on god notice that we don't just take away something from our life for the sake of taking away from our life like intermittent fasting i don't know if you heard about that is when you stop eating for a certain period of time but that's not worship i mean it's good for your health i guess Uh, i didn't do the research but um like it's not for the sake of worship Worship and fasting has to be done together. And honestly, I, I believe we're a church that worships, but a, a, a spiritual lost art that we need to get back in order to carry out the Great Commission in power, it's fasting. It's fasting. We need. It's something we just need to do. Like, in, in Matthew chapter 6, when, when Jesus is teaching, he's saying, and when you fast, don't be like the Pharisees because they like to muddle up their faces so they look like holy, like holy spiritual people, right? Um, um, but, but notice what Jesus said. He didn't say, and if you fast or should you fast. See, the question isn't should I fast? The, question, the thing is, it's when you fast. It's already expected of us. This is something we should be doing. We need to be taking things out of our life so we can be drawing ourselves to God. And it could be different things. I think the most classic example is food, and I think that's a great way to do it because it really causes you to say, hey, I just need the Lord. But there are other things too, things like sports, or video games, or, or um, some sort of activity that you, that you do on the regular basis that you really enjoy, and they're not necessarily bad. They could be bad, but they could be bad. But you take them away for a time to say, no, this is not my ultimate delight. My ultimate delight is just in the Lord. A church that is in the practice of praying and fasting or worshiping and fasting will be a church that carries out the, the gospel in power. Finally, the last point, and it's, it's found uh, continuing verse two all the way to the end. The Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. The point I get here is this, feature, last feature, and it's like a combo feature being sensitive to the Holy Spirit's calling and holding on to your members lightly. Sensitive to the Holy Spirit's calling and holding on to your members lightly. You see, they heard the Holy Spirit speak to them. Now, I don't know if it's an audible voice. I actually don't think so, because they still, after they heard the Holy Spirit, they still, like, prayed and fasted, and that's that's something you do if you're looking to God for a decision, and and if it was that clear, I think they were just like, okay, we got to go. So they were still seeking spiritual guidance. But there's this sensitivity to to God's Holy Spirit. When we are living in the church, are we thinking, Lord, how do you want to lead us in our life? Where do you want us to go? Are you calling me? Is it me, Lord? that you're going to send to be a missionary, to go out and, and carry the Great, great Commission? Is, is it me? And of course it's me to, to speak to my friends, to share the gospel. And if you're calling me, or if you're calling any of us, we're willing to go. See, we have to hold on to our members lightly. We have to realize that our allegiance is not the Ford Baptist Church. I mean, don't get me wrong. I think four baptist Church is pretty cool, you know. But but that's not our allegiance. Our allegiance is to capital C church, to the kingdom of God, to Jesus Christ. And if God says, leave this church, go somewhere else for for my kingdom, that's what we do. God's kingdom is not restricted to these four walls. It's bigger than that. And we need minds that are bigger than that. And you see it here. Look how lightly they hold on to their members. They're praying and they're fasting. Like, who should we send? Who is it? Should, should we send up like, the, the, the bench warmers? No, they don't send the bench warmers. They actually send Barnabas and Saul. Those are like their heavy hitters, those are their best players on the roster. And they also send John Mark, who's a little weird, but okay, we'll let him stay, whatever. Um, that's it's crazy. It's like, it's like sending, it's like, it's like we're a church and we're like, we're like okay, we need to send missionaries. Who should we send? It's like saying, okay, let's send Steve and Aaron and, and Mark. He's a little weird, but it's, whatever. We'll let him go. Okay? It's kind of like that, right? It's like we're not holding on to our members tightly. We're just saying, no, it's just about what Jesus wants, not what we want. And I think if we do those five things, so one, having strong male leadership. Two, having spiritual maturity as the only requirement to lead and carry out the Great Commission. Number three, having prophets and teachers looking in the past, vision casting to the future, to getting things done in the present, to being in worship and fasting and to being sensitive to the Holy Spirit's call and holding on to our members lately, If we do that, I believe that we can be a church that carries out the Great Commission in power. That being said, I want to ask one more question. How do we know individually that one of us is called to be a missionary? How do we know? I'm going to do quick, three, quick, quickly three things about them. Um, from the text, again, one, again, the Holy Spirit said, set apart. Again, they're sensitive to the Holy Spirit's calling. I don't think this is something that comes out of the blue. I think if the, if the calling is for you, it's been something that will be impressed upon your heart. It's something you're thinking about and mulling about. So if you're in this room and this is something you've been thinking about, maybe God's telling you now, hey, Go go. Be led in this. You have confirmation. You can go. Be sensitive to the Holy Spirit's calling. And secondly, pray and fast about it. This is not an easy decision. This is a decision you have to be entrenched in deep prayer for. This is something you have to be fastened. Fast food. In fact, Notice it wasn't just Paul and Barnabas fasting, it was the whole church fasting. If someone wants to be a missionary, and they really mean it, I don't think it's inappropriate to say, hey, church, can you fast with me? I've got to make this decision to, to go to the ends of the earth to share the gospel. Are you guys willing to fast with me and do this with me as we go as a team because we're in this together? And finally, it says, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. And I think a really big one is the church affirmation. This is not, again, a lone wolf activity. There's a recognition from the church at large where we say, hey, this person has been called. We know that you've been um, um, led by the Holy Spirit to do this thing. We're going to lay our hands on you. We're going to pray for you, and then we're going to send you off in support. A missionary supported by their local church and affirmed by their local church. I want to end off in this way. We really should look like the Church of Antioch. They are just so awesome. One verse. It's almost—it almost seems like a throwaway, but it's in Acts chapter 11, verse 26. I think. Let me read it. Um, and when he found him, he brought to him. He brought him to Antioch. So this is Paul. Uh, and so for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church, Paul, and taught a great number of people. And this is the last sentence. The disciples were called. Christians first at Antioch. Do you see that? It's here at the church of Antioch that the believers, that the disciples are first called Christians. And notice, they didn't call themselves Christians. They didn't go around and say, hey, um, I'm Christian now. That's the term I've, I've invented for myself. Like, here I am. That's not what happened. What actually happened is that there were people outside looking in. Whether it was, oh, that's a Christian, oh, that's awesome, I wanna be like that, or oh, that's a Christian, oh, get out of here. It was someone who looked at their lives and said, wow, that's someone who follows Christ. If anything, the word Christian is a secular term. People saw the way we lived and they said, that's someone who follows Jesus. So, my question for you guys today is for the church, Our weird church that lives our lives so much in faith that the community around us, they see us, and they say, that's a Christian. That's a church. They follow Jesus.